0: starting at Ecclesiastes 5, eight, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, <coughs> Excuse me. nor he who loves wealth with his income. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. Father, as we've read your word now, we pray that you would Help us to attend to the things written in your word to us this morning. God, we are so thankful for all of the amazing things that we've learned up to this point in the book of Ecclesiastes. But Lord, we believe that this morning you have a word to speak to us, that you have things that you want to address in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would give us attention and attentiveness to what you would say to us. And Lord, we pray that through the teaching of your word, you would continue to change us into the people that you've created us to be. So Lord, guide us now in our time in your word. Minister to us and instruct us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Well, a prayer warrior was sitting before the Lord one morning. And he said, Lord, what's a million years like to you? The Lord said, it's like a second. I said, wow. Well, Lord, what's a million dollars like to you? The Lord said, it's like a penny. The man sat for a moment and thought, and then he said, Lord, can I have a penny? And God said, sure, in just a second. Now, Solomon has addressed money indirectly up to this point in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, He's talked about work, he's talked about labor, toil, and in those contexts he has spoken to the topic of money. But today he's going to address this subject head on. And the reality is, sort of like the prayer warrior I just mentioned, that even as children of God, we have a propensity to be drawn in unhealthy ways toward money. And so we're thankful that God's word constantly addresses this subject because money Uh, again, can really capture the hearts of many people. In the society that you and I are living in, money is honestly seen as an absolute good. Uh, So if you talk to somebody and maybe they say that they're going to make a career change or they're going to accept a new position and you say, well, why is that? Why are you going to switch careers? If their response is, well, I can make more money, Most people kind of generally see that as like the end of the discussion. It's like, oh, okay, you're probably on the right track then. Sometimes well-meaning parents will try to advise their children uh, who might have a desire to go into a certain career or major that they're passionate about. They might try to encourage their kids, hey, even though you're passionate about that, even though that might be a quite fitting career for you, you should go in another direction because in that career field, you can actually make some serious money. The fact of the matter is that more money is not always better. In fact, more money can be a problem for many people. Solomon, in his teaching here regarding money, is going to begin with the problems of money. And there are are several. He says in verses 8 and 9 that there's something that we shouldn't be surprised about. Here's what he writes in verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness... Do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Solomon is saying, look, if you notice corruption in government, don't let that shock you. Just because somebody is in a position of power and wealth and influence, don't think they're going to be satisfied by that. Don't think they're going to go, great, I'm in control and I've got a lot of money. No, when people are in positions like that, unfortunately, a lot of times they just want more. More power, more possessions, more money. And unfortunately, some people will even use corruption and oppression to get it. Now, verse 9 is a tricky verse to translate in the Hebrew. Um, the ESV, of course, again, puts that having a king is a good thing, is, is the way the ESV translation takes it. The point could be that Solomon is saying, look, even though corruption exists in government and those who are in these positions are constantly sort of working the system, if you have a king in place or an ultimate authority, that's a good thing. Like, anarchy is not the best thing for your community. Even though there's corruption, notice that having government in place is good because it enables all of us to receive something from the land. But another way that this verse could be translated is captured by the New International Version. It says, the increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. So again, the Hebrew could be translated in a way that seems to suggest that even when you get to the top of the chain, the king himself even takes advantage of the system, even continues to profit off of things. Even the king isn't satisfied with being the top dog and having all the money. Well, if that's the way to translate it, it would make good sense of verse 10, which of course is a very powerful verse. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Verse 10 brings up the first problem that we see with money in the text this morning. And it's this, that money doesn't satisfy It doesn't. Money doesn't satisfy. If it did, then the king who had all the money would not be trying to get more money, or the high officials would not be after more and more money. Money will never satisfy. Now, I know that it's been said, whoever said money can't buy happiness isn't spending it right. Some of you are like, word. (laughs) Preach on, pastor. But money can't satisfy you. It won't the more you get, the more you want. If money could satisfy you, then those who have all the money would say, enough. I'm done. I don't need to accumulate anymore. Now, of course, many of you have heard this before, but John D. Rockefeller, who lived about 100 years ago and was the wealthiest man of his time, made an interesting statement. Now you need to understand how wealthy John D. Rockefeller was. This wasn't just a wealthy person, this was the richest person. In fact, um, at the height of his wealth, John D. Rockefeller owned one percent of the U.S. economy. Let me put that into today's terms for you. If you owned one percent of the U.S. economy, that would be approximately a net worth of 220 billion dollars. Or, let's put it differently. That's double the amount of money of the current richest person in the world, Jeff Bezos of Amazon. He's worth about $114 billion. So think, today's richest person, Rockefeller, is double that wealthy. And he was interviewed and they said, how much money is enough? His response, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. If you think that having money is going to satisfy you, think Again, the more you get, the more you want. Now, science is constantly proving this to us. Catherine Sanderson, who's a psychology professor at Amherst College, writes this, quote, we always think if we just had a little bit more money, we'd be happier. But when we get there, we're not, end quote. Research is continuing to prove to us that After you get a basic level of comfort in your life, an increase in wealth has little to no effect on your happiness. Consider the words of Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert. He says, once you get basic human needs met, a lot more money doesn't make a lot more happiness, end quote. Now, why is this? Why doesn't more and more money make you more and more happy? Well, there's Numerous reasons, but part of it is because money distorts important things in your life. Starting with your own heart. Money gives power, pleasure, influence, and prestige. And family, this is dangerous territory that most people are not equipped to navigate well. All of a sudden you have wealth, all of a sudden you have power, all of a sudden you've got a say in everything, you've got real influence, you can flex your muscles, that goes to a lot of people's heads. And it starts distorting their heart. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 23 and 24, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul warned young Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money Is a root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, this inordinate love or desire for money leads people away from God, can lead you into all sorts of different sins that are destructive to your soul. It can distort your heart. But another thing that money often distorts is your relationships. And Solomon says so much in verse. 11 he says when goods increase they increase who eat them and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes in other words the more you get the more people want when all of a sudden you've got a lot of money people sort of like vultures start making their way around you whether it's the IRS saying more taxes more taxes more taxes or it's family or friends or others who sort of want to freeload off of you. Charles Barkley, a Hall of Fame basketball player, said this. He said, money ruins all of your relationships. No matter what you do for your family, it's never enough. All your friends think because you're rich, you should bail them out of every situation. End quote. Many wealthy people struggle to know who their real friends are. It's a challenge because, of course, they're going, does this person like me? Does this person want to hang out with me? Does this person want to spend time with me because of me? Because they care about me? Or is it because I have a lot of money and they think that they can get something out of me? Oftentimes, the wealthy have not only the headache and the stress and the the anxiety of managing their wealth and perhaps running their company, but now they also have this added stress of trying to navigate through these complex relational dynamics. Again, do my children actually love me? Do my friends actually care about me? Are these real friends? Or are they just in it for the money? If you talk to successful business owners or maybe higher-ups in a corporation, oftentimes they'll report to you that they have stress and anxiety and concerns and worries now that they never had when they were lower down on the rung in the corporation or before they started their own business. These things keep them up at night. They have to constantly think about the next project and keeping their employees busy and all of the headaches and the stresses that come with it. This is why Solomon writes here in verse 12 that sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The words of the late Notorious B.I.G. summarize this section. He said, the more money we come across, the more problems we see. So money doesn't satisfy. But second, we see another problem with money in the next section. Money is uncertain. Look at verse 13. Solomon says, there's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Now, how many people have had a similar experience? Maybe at one point in your life, you did have the booming business. Things were cranking. You had a lot of money. You had all these resources, but something changed. An changed, a, a unforeseen circumstance came in, and all of a sudden, you lost what you once had. Maybe it was that sort of technological advance, advances pushed your business out. Maybe it was a new competitor who came up and all of a sudden your business no longer worked. Or perhaps like the man in verse 14 here, maybe what happened was you just made a bad investment. You misread things. You thought, okay, this is, this is where we need to go. This is where we should take the business or this is where I need to invest my resources. And it didn't work out. Everything fell apart and all of a sudden you're left with almost nothing. Solomon sees this as an upsetting travesty. But here's the reality. Whether you do have something to pass on to your children when it's all said and done, or you don't, Solomon wants us to remind us that naked you came into the world and naked you're going to leave the world. You came into the world with this much money in your bank account, friend. You had nothing in your hand. And guess what? One day, you're going to die, you're going to get put in a wood box, and you're going to be put in the earth with nothing in your hand. With no money going on with you. You're going to have nothing when this life is over. And Solomon is saying, look, your riches are uncertain. You can't hold on to them. And not only are they uncertain, but they're temporary. This is the third problem with money. It's temporary. We see this in verse 15. Again, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. It's been said you've never seen a U-Haul being pulled by a hearse. It's not the way it works. You don't die and they load up all your stuff and say, it's got to go with them. Right? It just gets handed off to somebody else. It gets left behind. 1 Timothy 6-7 says, We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. I heard the story of a very rich man who died, and his family and his friends all gathered together, and they were having a not only service for him, but then a reception afterward. One of his friends sort of pulled his son aside privately and said, So how much money did he actually leave behind? All of it, his son replied. I mean, it doesn't really matter, right? If it was a lot or a little, all of it gets left behind. You can't take it with you. Now, if that's true, if if we don't bring anything into the world, and if we can't take anything out of the world, Solomon wants to press us into a question here. He says, so then what is the net gain for all of those decades of work, toil, labor, striving, investing, saving, spending, He says, what's actually the net gain of that when you sit and you look at it from the perspective of death? And of course, the rhetorical answer would be nothing. But that's not exactly true. He does think that if you're rich and greedy, there is one thing that you earn for all of your life's toil. We find it in verse 17, it's misery. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. This is the place that greed will lead you to, a place of being alone in your misery. DeMar DeRozan, who's a star basketball player currently, made this comment in the media. He said, people say, what are you depressed about? You can buy anything you want. I wish everyone in the world was rich so they would realize money isn't everything. It's like, oh, you don't have any right to be depressed. You can buy whatever you want. No, rich people can be depressed too, and oftentimes they are. So what are we to do? If, it's, if money doesn't satisfy, if money is uncertain, you have no guarantee you're still going to have it tomorrow, and if, of course, money is temporary and you leave it all behind, how do we move forward as the people of God when we think about money? Well, Solomon's going to shift gears here for us. And here's the cool thing. If we shift our attitude about our money then we can change our relationship to money. Let me say it again. If we can shift our attitude about money, it can change our relationship to our money. Here's the first thing Solomon is going to say to us. View money as a gift from God. Look at verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life, that who? God has given to him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So the first key is view money as a gift from God. See your job and see the money that it affords you, whether it's a little bit of money or a lot of bit of money as God's gift to you. Notice that God is referred to four times in these three verses. Solomon understands that you can't have a right relationship with money until you put God into the equation, until you understand that everything you have is a gift from God. So if you look at your money as I earned this, this is for me, this is my money, you're going to have a very dysfunctional relationship with money and it's going to produce a lot of misery in your life. But if you can understand that money and the, the skills that you have, the talents that you have that enable you to go make your money, the job that you have, the economy that you're working in, if you understand all of that as coming from the hand of a gracious God, this is the beginning of wisdom. This is the beginning of having a healthy relationship with money. Because if you see it this way, guess what happens? You don't serve money. You see money, again, as a gift, and you'll recognize that it's just a tool or an instrument that God has given you to steward. Or to put it differently, and this is the second key thing about how we view our money. It helps us to view money as a means to enjoying life as a means to enjoying life. Solomon's saying, look, enjoy your life. Eat a good meal. Drink a good drink. Include family, friends, and maybe a family from the church into that. Maybe buy somebody else a nice meal. Go on a good family vacation. Bless your children. Go see the world. Well, pastor, we don't have money for a nice vacation. guess what the good news is you live on the central coast. (laughs) You live in paradise. Okay, spend $10 in gas and go up to El Capitan and rent a campsite for two nights for $90. And you'll have a beautiful family vacation. It doesn't cost a lot to do that. Okay, but we live in a beautiful place. You can enjoy the glory of God's creation and delight in the goodness of God and the good things that he's given to us. Now, some Christians act as if there's something sort of irreligious about enjoying the money that God has given to you, the things that God has given to you, the beautiful country that we live in. Some Christians have the attitude of like, hey, we smile during church, we smile during Bible study, we smile during prayer, but we don't smile when we have to dabble into all that worldly nonsense out there. Ecclesiastes is so helpful ecclesiastes is like look laugh and smile and rejoice over a good meal and a good drink and for god's sake when you're making love to your spouse like laugh and smile and enjoy it these are good gifts from god this is the christian way christians should be the most joyful people on planet earth because we're not living for the moment we're living for eternity and therefore we can enjoy the moment Enjoy the life that you've been given, Solomon says. It's a gift from God. This is the Christian way. After all, you need to see this. Look at this. It's God who gives us life, number one, in verse 18. It's God who gives us wealth and possessions, in verse 19. And this is so key. It's God who gives us the power to enjoy those things, in verse 19. So God is wanting to empower you to enjoy the blessings that he's given to you. Let me put this to you a little bit differently. To reject the joy that is to be had through the resources you have is to effectively reject the goodness of God toward you. If you're a person who says, no, 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 we're not going to have any fun or take any joy in the things that God's given to us, you're rejecting God's goodness toward you. God wants to bless you. He's a good father. And God's giving you what he's giving you in part to bring joy to your life. So receive it as a gift because it's certainly not a guarantee. If you're in a place in your life right now where you have some level of resources and you have the power to enjoy those resources, you better enjoy it because there's no guarantee that tomorrow's going to be like that. In fact, that's the point that he makes in the next paragraph. He says there's an evil, this is chapter 6 verse 1, that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Check it out. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, he says. It's a grievous evil. Solomon here is depicting like the most blessed man you can imagine as far as the Hebrew people saw it. When Hebrews thought about a blessed life, here's what they thought about. They thought about wealth, and even more than that, they thought about long life, and they thought about lots of children. If you had those things, God was being favorable to you and generous. He had blessed your life. And so Solomon's like, imagine a guy. He's rich, he's got honor, people look up to him, and I don't know, he's got 100 kids. Like that guy should be totally stoked that he gets to have a hundred kids. I don't know about his wife being stoked, but he's stoked he gets to have a hundred kids. So he kind of has it all, like everything that should make life happy. And then Solomon says, but what if, despite having all that, God does not give him the power to actually enjoy what he's got? He says, this is a grievous evil. This is, this is like absurdity. He says it's vanity or hebel. Remember that Hebrew word that means a vapor of smoke. He's saying it's just an absurdity. It's a miserable situation to be in. Now, why wouldn't this man have the power to enjoy the things that he has? We don't know. Solomon doesn't tell us. But it could be sickness. Maybe all of a sudden he gets to this point where he's got everything in his life and then he has a life-altering diagnosis come. And now all of a sudden he's, paralyzed or in a wheelchair or in a sickbed and all of a sudden he can no longer enjoy all the things that he had in his life. Or maybe it was through death. He says a stranger now is enjoying all the things that he had. So maybe it was through death and now he can't enjoy these things. And we see these kinds of things happen and it's tragic. That person who's maybe in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s sort of burning the midnight oil. They're working so hard. They're delaying all the gratification. It's about investing right now. It's about saving. Hey, honey, we'll do Europe someday. Maybe we'll travel later. We'll take our kids on nice vacations someday. We'll buy a nicer cart because right now we're pension pennies. We're going to make it, make it, make it. So we can have a good retirement and they work so hard. And then when they retire, tragically, they have a heart attack. Or they have a stroke or something, and they're incapacitated, or, or perhaps even dead, and they never get to enjoy the things that they were trying to store up for in this life. A couple years ago, Pastor Ryan was going to do a wedding for a guy, man in his fifties, had just retired from the police department, so he had a great retirement. Um, they were they were about to have his retirement party, and he was about to get married. So he's engaged they're planning the wedding and the retirement party and ryan's going to do the wedding and the man dies in a motorcycle accident never gets to do the wedding here's a man who kind of did it right he worked hard he was retiring young he was getting married seemed like he had many years ahead of him and he didn't and solomon is saying this is a tragedy when this happens it's an absurdity about life and so what, what's the point, though? He's, he's kind of reinforcing the point that he had just made at the end of chapter 5. Don't sit trying to live for that day. Well, when we get to this thing, we'll actually enjoy a little bit of life. Solomon is saying, look, if God has given you a job and if God has given you some resources and if God has blessed you with a family or good friends, like learn to stop in the moment and appreciate what you have. Like learn to linger over a meal and good drink and good fellowship with your friends, and again, try to take that family vacation. Me and my wife were recently getting a little bit depressed because we were thinking about my oldest son, Judas, turning eight this year. And I said, oh my gosh, that means I only have 10 more summer vacations with this kid. When he was born, trust me, I had all these amazing vacations in my head that I was going to take that kid on during the years that he was under my roof. And now I'm like, shoot, I've only got 10 more summers to try to do that. Like life goes like that. And Solomon is saying, Again, stop learning to live for that day, this elusive day out there when we can retire and we're really going to... That's a trap. It's a trap. Learn to enjoy what you have now. Third, we need to learn to live contently. Look at verse 7 in chapter 6. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man... Who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Solomon says that all of our work is for our mouth. Okay? So when you go to work, it's to feed yourself, (laughs) right? We go, we earn a paycheck, we go to Costco, we load up on groceries, we devour the groceries. Next week, we get a paycheck. We go to Costco. We load up on groceries. We devour the groceries. The next week, we get a paycheck. We go to Costco. We could do this all day if you don't want to nod, but if you want to nod along like, yeah, that is kind of true, right? So all of our work is to take care of ourselves, to meet our needs, and he's saying, look, but it never stops. And that's definitely one way of understanding what he means here, this fact that we work because we need food, and it never ends. But actually, most commentators would say it's it's more probable that he's pointing to the fact that all of us as human beings have appetites and desires that can never be met through our work and our toil. And so he says, look, wh- like what does the wise person actually gain over the foolish person or the rich person over the poor person. He says, look, even if a poor person is wise and can kind of work their way up, like what are they going to gain? That's not actually going to satisfy those inner cravings. They're still going to be a person who's desiring more. They're still going to want more. We still have these appetites, these desires that are not being fulfilled in the marketplace or through our possessions. So verse 9 then becomes the solution. Here's how the New Living Translation translates it enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. Solomon's saying, look, quit adding to your Amazon wish list night after night after night. Just like hang out with your kids or your grandkids. Watch a TV show with your wife. Play Yahtzee. I don't know what you want to do for fun. But, but quit just saying it's, I want more, I want more. It's about the next thing, like learn to actually live, delighting in what you've got now. Live contently. And fourth and finally, live acceptingly. We see this in verse 10. What has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Live acceptingly. This paragraph flows out of the last thought, where Solomon was teaching us to enjoy what we have instead of dreaming about what we don't have. He's saying here, accept that God knows what he's doing. This is the one who's stronger than us. It's God. Accept that God is the one who has allotted what you have. Friend, listen, if God wanted you to be rich, you'd be rich. Well, what if I could have been rich, but I messed it all up? Well, then if God wanted you to be rich, God wouldn't have made you foolish. <laughs> God's in control. If God wanted you to be uber successful by the world standards and have it all and have money, you'd have it. But if you don't, accept that. Now, Solomon acknowledges that you can try to dispute with one stronger than you. You can go have an argument with God. God, this isn't fair. God, I deserve more. God, how come he or how come she? But Solomon tells us in verse 11 what doing that actually is. He says, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? It's just vain. It's not going to get you anywhere. You can complain. You can argue. Or you can learn to live acceptingly. And say, God knows. Maybe having the things that my neighbor has or my sister-in-law has would actually be the destruction of my soul. It'd be the unraveling of my relationships. So rather than trying to figure all that out, rather than trying to complain, just say God knows best. Or as we like to say, Father knows best. Learn to live acceptingly. And if you can do that, you're going to find that you're a blessed person. Does this mean we don't try to improve our station in life? No, not at all. The scriptures are replete with encouragements to try to be industrious and try to improve your lot as you have opportunity. In fact, the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, she's the ideal woman of the Old Testament, is praised for her business savvy and her ability to grow wealth. She's rocking her her Etsy account, okay? This is what it says, Proverbs 31. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. So listen, of course, work hard. Of course, try to improve your station in life if you can. But the key that Solomon is trying to get to here is to learn to live with contentment where you are and learn to accept that God knows best in the way that he has gifted you, the things that he's given to you, the resources that he has provided you are ultimately for his glory and for your good. Because if you'll do this, you'll find a life of contentment. But if you think that happiness is just on the other side of that degree, Or just on the other side of that promotion, or just on the other side of that purchase, friend, you still don't get it. Solomon has a lot of wisdom regarding money. And it's not surprising then that the one who was greater than Solomon, Jesus our Lord, also had a lot to say about money. Money is especially dangerous because it's especially powerful. So, how can we as Christians free ourselves from a love of money? One of the best ways is by listen giving it away. Generosity is the antidote to greed. This is why God constantly calls his people to give their resources back to him. Do you think God wants your money or tells you to give your money to him because God's broke? Does God need some investors to get his next project funded? No. The scripture says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So the fact that God calls you to give your money back to him, a portion of your money back to him, must then not be for his sake, but for yours. Listen to this. Here's what Jesus says. This is so important. This is Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Here's the key, check this out. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice this, your heart follows your treasure. Well, what do you mean? If Apple stocks plunged tomorrow, most of us in this room wouldn't really care that much, except for my Westmont guys over here who are day traders. They'd be like, ah, But if Apple stocks plunged tomorrow, most of us would be like, meh. But if you invested $100,000 in Apple, you'd really care if Apple stocks plunged tomorrow. Why? Because when you put your treasure into something, your heart is now attached to it. You care about it, you're concerned about it. And so God wants his people to learn to be concerned about what God's concerned about, to be concerned about his kingdom, his priorities in the world. And so he says, look, give your resources to me, to the work of my ministry, to the work of the kingdom, so that your heart will not be tethered to this world, but instead your heart will be tethered to my kingdom and the things that actually matter most. But also notice that in this verse, when we give to God, we're actually not losing Did you know when you give your money to God or to the purposes of God in this world, compassion, loving, serving people in need, did you know that that money is actually an investment, not a loss? Jesus said in that verse that we can actually lay up treasure in heaven with the way that we steward our resources now. So as we give to his work, we're actually investing in the kingdom to come. But of course, for any true Christian, you know that's just icing on the cake. We don't give to receive. True Christians give because of what they've already received. Let me end with this verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is a passage in 2 Corinthians that's dealing with giving. And Paul's saying, look, Jesus had it all. He's rich, eternally rich in heaven, the glory of his Father. And yet he became poor at the incarnation when he came to this earth for your sake and my sake. He lived this righteous life and he laid it down on the cross for our sake so that our sins could be forgiven. And then he took his life up again three days later at the resurrection. He ascended to the Father and he's there now. And he's inviting all of us by faith to receive him And as we receive him, we get to experience brand new life in him. Therefore, if we're in Christ, we have truly become rich. And so, when we think about our earthly money, we give our money, we steward our money well as a response to all that we've received from God. And we offer it to him as a sacrificial offering. This offering of our whole selves to God is, according to the Apostle Paul, our reasonable Service. That's Romans 12, two. In other words, offering your whole life, including your resources to God, is only what makes sense. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the amazing riches that we have in Christ. Knowing that because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have what the scriptures call true riches forgiveness of our sins a relationship with our Father in heaven, the promise of eternal life in your kingdom, where there is only joy forever. Lord, we pray that we would constantly have our hearts washed in the good news of the gospel and our minds drenched in this good news of the riches that we have in Christ. And Lord, we pray that that good news, we pray that this standing that we have in you as your children would continuously pry our hearts away from all the temptations in this world to love money, to pursue money, to sacrifice the more important things like our relationship with you or our relationship with others in the pursuit of money. Lord, help us not to go that way. Help us to be a people who see our money as a gift, who see our money as a means toward Enjoyment in this life and toward investing in your kingdom and toward blessing other people around us. And as we choose to live that way, Lord, we pray that we would be glorifying to you and we would be a blessing to others around us. So, Lord, orient our hearts toward heaven today. And, Lord, help us to constantly orient our finances toward heaven, being wise like our Lord Jesus taught us, laying up treasures in heaven where they're safe and secure investments. So Lord, guide us into that, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, would you please stand to your feet as we worship now?